I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 9. We'll study together verses 6 through 13. Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. We're taking up where we left off. That is the regular culture of our church to study. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible, omitting nothing. Because we believe that the Bible is the holy, inerrant, and inspired word of God. Not only in the things that it says, but in the order with which they are organized. This is our reliance on the wisdom of God for the keeping of us. And so, friends, I encourage you that as we take it up, just just know... Uh, that as we come together this morning, and some of you, if you're visitors, you think, well, I'm in a Presbyterian church, and the first thing I'm going to hear about is election. It's because God is sovereign. That's where we are in the text, and it's what he intends for you this Lord's Day morning. As we come to Romans chapter 9, we come to what I consider, and very many also consider, one of the greatest chapters of the entire Bible. And in the first section that we studied some three weeks ago, verses 1 through 5, we have the Apostle Paul expressing his heart for his own people. And you may recall that when we studied it, the focus of the study was how should we as Christians be concerned and have a heart for our unbelieving family members. And now we take it up and we consider again Paul's continued argument as he's bled his heart out to his own people, the Jews, and now he considers the promises of God and the Jewish people so that we're instructed on how God's love is extended to those whom he will save. And so let us read God's word and we'll study it together. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived uh, children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told... The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands firm. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as you speak, you are inviting your people to consider your eternal glory. O Lord, finite beings to peer into the transcendent glory that is all about you. 
Lord, you invite us to consider things that are too high, some things that are concealed from view, and some things that we can only see in part. And Lord, we know that at every point of your self-revelation, you intend us to come nearer to you, to delight more in you, to be confronted with your call that we ought to be like you, and that we ought to be a people that would cast down our sins. Lord, we pray that this morning as we handle this Holy Scripture, Lord, that you would minister to us well beyond our own capacities. Lord, that we would understand what can be understood. That, Lord, we would accept what you teach. Oh, Lord, that we would be amazed that you would love us and that you would ordain to save us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As I mentioned just a moment ago, we began this chapter uh, three weeks ago. It's been some time. And three weeks ago, as we studied verses 1 through 5, Paul began to bear his heart for unbelieving Israel. And it was his honest burden that he had for his own kinsmen, his, his family members. It's Paul dealing with the reality that he loves Jesus, yet his brother, his sister, his mother, his family, they don't know him. They're far from the Lord. They haven't received Jesus, the Messiah of God. Paul wrote in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You see, the apostle's heart is so burdened and so desirous to see his family members redeemed that he, if it were possible, says he would dive into hell for them. This is the same kind of heart that a parent might have whenever the child runs into traffic in front of the vehicle. And with just the last second of time, they jump in, push the child to safety, and take the oncoming car. Paul loves his family members. And I want to be clear about that because you could read this chapter of Scripture and do as some have. Simply say, Paul doesn't like Israel. Paul's something like a proto-anti-Semite, but nothing could be farther from the truth. He is a Christian man converted from the household of Israel who loves his family, but loves Christ above all. Whenever he writes this, he has all of the torment of his own soul swirling around within him as he's considering that he has been saved, yet his family hasn't. And we read in verses 4 and 5 all of the privileges of the household of Israel. All of the wonderful things that God had given. He had given His promises. He had given the patriarchs. He had given the covenants. He had given the worship. He had given His presence for the daily and regular keeping of the people of Israel. As the Holy Spirit was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And it was a hard and painful reality for Him. And I, I think also it's confusing sometimes for us to have this large question hanging over the Bible and over the faith once delivered to the saints. And that would be this. 
If Israel is God's people, if Israel are God's people, then why didn't they receive Jesus, the Messiah, given to them by God? It's a large question. And some people come down on every different side of it and answer it in lots of different ways. And the Apostle Paul raises the question and puts it before us as if he were saying, how can this be? Anticipating that people would say, are they not still God's people? And then the larger question and the larger issue that would be raised if the Israelites are not saved through the reception of Jesus as the Savior. Has God's promise failed? You see, that's the bigger issue. It's the character of God. Can God be trusted? If He said that Israel were His people and He didn't save them, then are His words true? That's what Paul's zeroing in on. And I think it's a sweet and an important thing for us to just put our focus upon that Paul's concern is for our understanding of who our God. More than anything else. More than being concerned about a people group being saved. He is concerned about the honor and the glory of the person of our God. How can this be? Do God's promises fail? There are huge questions. Questions about the reliability of God. And questions that ultimately may leave you asking the simple question. Can I rely on Him? Can I rely on Him? In verses 6 through 13, Paul answers these and this specific large question about can the promises of God fail? And he answers it very simply and he says, no, they cannot fail. No, the promises of God have not failed. They will not fail. And then he takes us to the proper place to display to us the truths of God, and that is the Bible. Three different sections regarding Three different Old Testament persons, and I want to divide them like this if you're going to take notes. The first is a distinction within Israel. Verse 6. A distinction within Israel. Verse 6. Then in verses 7 through 9, the children of promise. The children of promise. And then in verses 10 through 13, God's sovereign election. God's sovereign election. So as we come to verse 6, the first thing that Paul introduces to us is a question. As if he would put it on the front of our foreheads. Something right in front of us written on a chalkboard so that our attention would be drawn to it. Has God's word failed? And he doesn't pose it without an answer. It's all contained there within the verse. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because again, the big question, how is it that God can be true and that his word can be reliable if he has said that Israel are his people, yet Israel, by and large, has rejected Jesus Christ the Messiah? And you may be sitting and thinking, well, pastor, don't you know, obviously... That the first Christians were converted Jews. Yes, absolutely. Undoubtedly. Certainly the case. But the majority of the people of Israel did not receive him. Just remember the testimony of John 1. 
He came to the world and the world rejected Him. He came to His own and His own people rejected Him. That's just the simple testimony of the Scriptures. Who was it that pursued Jesus and persecuted Him and took Him before the Roman authorities? It was His own people. It was His own people. And this is the reality that has rocked the testimony of the Gospel as it's going forth to Jewish people in the context that Paul finds himself. They're saying simply, well, Paul, if he is the Messiah of God, then how is it that none of us or all of us have not then received him? And so Paul answers, obviously, as we've already read, no, God's word has not failed. His promises are good and they remain true. And yet still there is this reality that he has to come and to face. And he does it again, as I mentioned a moment ago, with three different proofs or citations. And the first of them that he does is he identifies very specifically the whole people of God who have been called Israel. The second part of verse 6, he begins to answer the question. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I want to begin by saying that whenever Paul uses the word Israel, he's not specifically referring to Jacob in this circumstance. He's talking about the nation. And he makes a distinction within Israel. And it's one that I think would have probably been disturbing to his original hearers. It may be one that gives you a moment to take pause and say, well, how can he say this? Not all Israel are Israel. It's like me coming to Germany and saying, well, you know, not all Germans are really German. Only some are really German. And making some sort of distinction among people or culturally to point at Americans and say, well, the Americans I don't like over here, they're not really Americans. The real Americans are the ones that are pleasant and decent and intelligent and do good things all the time. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not making an angry, racist, anti-Semitic or any other sort of distinction within Israel. He's making a spiritual and significant distinction. One that is shocking, but one that is likewise very biblical. And whenever Paul speaks about this, the other proofs that he's going to make are going to show this in more clear fashion. But I just want to point specifically to the reality that in the Old Testament, again and again, they make this very distinction within the text, raised up from in the midst of the Jewish people. Not all Israel is Israel. So much so that one of the great prophetic themes of the Old Testament played again and again is the faithful remnant. That you have all of the people of Israel who have gone away from the Lord, yet out from the faithless mass there is a faithful remnant. The Lord will not retract His mercy from the people, nor will they be wiped from the face of the earth. But there will continue a faithful group within Israel. It's a thing that is native within the text of the Israelite people. The spirituality, this idea that there are a people who walk with the Lord, who worship Him in spirit and in truth, a thing that's all the way seen into the Old Testament and that is just shot through the whole of the corpus of the Old Testament books. And you say, well, Pastor, that's good. I understand that. That could probably be 
interpreted in a few different ways. What about the New Testament? And I want to encourage you that Paul's not alone in this distinction. Jesus is happy to make these distinctions. John 1, 47. You may recall John 1. It's a great chapter of the Bible, and it's got a lot of diversity. You've got these magnificent and eternal themes in the first few verses, and then it goes down, and then the latter portion of John 1, you have Jesus encountering his first disciples, and specifically, he encounters this disciple Nathaniel. Do you recall Nathaniel? He hears about Jesus from the other disciples who are, who are already following Jesus, and he hears the testimony that Jesus has come from Nazareth. Do you remember Nathaniel's reception of the news that Jesus has come from Nazareth? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, that's really nowhere. Even the name Nazareth, it means obscure, rural, uh, small village, a town in the sticks. It's, it's nothing important. It's no place of pride or prominence. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And then in verse 47, we read that Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and that the Lord said to him, Behold, a true Israelite, within whom there is no deceit. And you say, well, you're reading a lot onto that, Pastor. But I do think that Jesus makes a distinction. And likewise, I don't believe that Jesus pays empty compliments. I believe Jesus means something in this. I believe that whenever he sees Nathaniel and he speaks to Nathaniel, he is speaking about the inner portions of the man. He's talking about his soul and about his faith. As John goes on to indicate, it only makes sense that it's this sort of man that Jesus then calls to be one of his disciples and you say, okay, well, we've got the Old Testament, we've got Jesus, but do we have more from the New Testament? I mean, not all Israel is Israel, we're going along, but how about Paul? Is he consistent? Or is this something he just sort of says in a moment where his heart and his emotions are stirred to a fevered pitch? Well, Romans chapter 2, he's already introduced us to this, verses 28 through 29. Paul wrote, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. It's consistent that the people of God are a spiritual people, and it is consistent to make a distinction. And what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying to his readers, you need to understand that if you are talking about the promises of God that have gone to Israel, they have still gone to Israel. They have not failed. His people are marked by their hearts and their souls. They are marked as a people who are toward him and near to him in loving and faithful intimacy. Now that ought to stand out to you and to me. It really ought to. There is not a single church in all the world that doesn't want every single one of her members to be redeemed. Not a single one. There's not a minister that has ever preached or ever prayed over the people of God 
who's not desired every single person in the room to love the Lord and to be full recipients of His grace. But if there is a distinction within Israel, there is likewise a distinction within the Israel that is today the church. There are people who are gathered. There are those who are called by the name. There are even those that are upon the rolls of churches. Yet it is not the association with a body of people that make you a child of God. It is the work of God in you, who He has chosen before the foundation of the world, that is drawing you nearer and nearer into fellowship with Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now you say, a pastor, that's tough. You know, you're telling me not all the church is the church. Well, Christ's people are the church. Those who are redeemed are the church. But we ought never to have a false pretense that just showing up, just coming forward, just saying words, just receiving baptism, just doing this or that, securely and firmly places us within all of the benefits of God and the saving grace that is given to His people. That is only by His work and the faith of the heart of the believer. He goes on in verses 7 through 9. He continues to pursue this as he is displaying uh, that it is not that the Lord's word has failed, that His promises are still good. It gives the second biblical example. Read there with me in verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are His offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. So he confronts not only the idea of the natural people of Israel or the ethnic people of Israel, but very specifically the household of Abraham. Not every child that comes forth naturally through descent from Abraham are the people of God. That's what he's saying. They're not all the children of promise. And you say, well, hang on a second. Explain that to me. How many sons did Abraham have? He had two. And the order of them are this. The first is Ishmael, born of Hagar. Do you recall who Hagar was? Hagar was an Egyptian servant of Abraham. And then the second son is Isaac. Called the son of promise. His name means to laugh because he was born to these parents who were of such old age that it seemed an impossible thing. And it was comical because of the grace of God to give this child these two, his mother being Sarah, the normal wife of Abraham. So he's drawing our attention to Genesis 21 12. And it's as if he's writing, because I believe he is, to Jewish people who may be accusing him of, hey, Aren't you just kicking us out? Don't you have any sense of this? You just hate us and you don't love our people. And he says, why don't you think of Abraham? The two sons, yet not both, are the sons of promise. The Lord is absolutely clear. Genesis 21, 12. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You back away and you say, hang on a second. What about Ishmael? He's not the son of promise. He's not the one through whom the offspring of Abraham are named. His household doesn't get called the household of Abraham. The promises of God don't go forth to him and to his line, but rather they go forth 
to Isaac. And you might say, but hang on a second, isn't Ishmael the firstborn? Wouldn't it naturally be his right? Wouldn't it naturally be his? And this is exactly Paul's point. The people of God are those marked by his promise, not by birth order. The people of God are marked by his promise, not natural descent. They're marked by His Word, His mercy, His grace to His people. That's who they are. They're not in any way constructed after the fashion that we organize our families or even by the laws of the land. The promise of God came to the second born, the son born of Sarah, the child of promise. That's who it is. And you may say, why? And I think I can genuinely answer you and say this. The promise came through Isaac because it pleased God. It pleased God. It was his decision that the line of Isaac would be those to whom the promise went. And let me tell you this, as an Israelite reads this and they go through all of the different uh, portions of this argument, they're going to puff their chest out in the ancient day, and I think today as well, and say, absolutely. Promise came not through Ishmael but through Isaac. It didn't come through the son of Hagar, it came through the son of Sarah and Abraham. That's who we are. But you see, Paul's point is this it's not just because of who your parents are that you're a child of God, it is the kindness, the mercy, and the grace of God. God extended to you freely on his own account, not on any human institution or human sense of order. And you say, Pastor, well, where should I go with this? We're Presbyterians. We baptize our infants. We call them covenant children. How should I deal with this? You've told me that they're promised to our children. You've read to me Acts chapter 2. This is a promise to you and your children and your children's children into a thousand generations. Friends, I want to tell you very simply, yes, we are still talking about the same thing. We're still talking about the same God, the God of promises. We're still talking about a God who's made a promise to believing parents. We don't just baptize any children ever. We baptize the children of believers. And when we talk about the promise, who's received the promise? The believing parent. And it is in faith and on the ground of hope That the Lord will give a new heart. That the Lord will convert. That the Lord will convict. And the Lord will bring this child in due time close to him. Because where are they? They're in the household of faith. Where are they? They're near to the covenants. They're near to the worship. They're near to the promises. They've received baptism. And we press on in hope. But what makes them a child of God? It's not their identity with the community. It's not their identity with parents. It is only the saving grace of God. That doesn't mean that as parents we can't say to our children, make good your baptism. You're not just like anybody. You have a responsibility to put your faith in Christ. I believe that's absolutely essential to what we should be doing with our children. And calling them to faith and calling them to submission and calling them into a life with Christ. 
But even as Reformed Presbyterian people, we should never for a moment presume upon the natural lineage of our own households. We should always be expected and reliant and prayerful on the promises of God that he's given to us and that we would plead for him to bring to full fruit in the lives of our own households. Verses 10 through 13, God's sovereign election as he continues on. He's not done thus far. Verse 9, he writes, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Paul continues on with the second example. Or third, excuse me. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Third example, very essential and central to the people of Israel. We've spoken about their national identity, their specific family identity in the man Abraham, and then now another patriarch, Isaac, in the household that was raised up through him with his wife, Rebecca, Genesis 25. And if anybody was lagging behind or thinking that the previous argument, well, the only reason Ishmael wasn't the child of the covenant, the child of promise, Oh, it's just because of his mother. She was the weak link in the chain. That's where God makes the distinction. It's, you see, Pastor, it's got to still be through the natural uh, means and the natural order. And everything is good in the household of Isaac. But here, what do you have? You have Rebecca, a woman pregnant with twins. Bless her heart. Two boys. You've got Jacob, you've got Esau, and you've got this birth that goes on, and who's the first to be born? Well, you've got Esau. And what do you have with Jacob? The biblical text speaks of him hanging on to a heel. In fact, that's why his name is Jacob, because he's the heel grabber, the one who's pulling the brother back in so he can beat him out to be the inheritor. The one who wants all the goods. Because the older brother is the one who inherits the lion's share of the family's belongings. And there's this biblical picture and narrative. And nonetheless, you've got these two boys being born. And there is a distinction among them that's recorded in the Bible. And one that I think is very hard to hear. It's God's declaration... That he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Some of you may come to this passage and you'll say, well, pastor, it's just because God looked forward through the ether of history in the future. And he looked upon Jacob and he judged the uprightness of the heart of Jacob the goodness of the things that he would do, and he chose him and loved him because of who he would be. Read the verse again. 
Read the verse of Scripture again. Verse 11, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, and Paul tells you why God has said this, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's not because of what they did. It's not because of what they would do. They had done nothing. They weren't born. It was nothing foreseen in them that wasn't the purpose of God. It was because he decided and delighted to choose one of them, Jacob, to set his love upon. It is his sovereign, free, electing, merciful, gracious love to Jacob that he withheld from Esau. That's what the text teaches. And you may say, I'm not comfortable with that. Doesn't make it less clear. Doesn't make it less true. It seems harsh, Pastor. It seems like he's prejudging poor Esau. It seems like Esau's being excluded. I mean, who wants to be the kid left out of all the good things? The one who's never chosen for the team. The one who, from the very beginning, has a prejudice against him. That's hard, Pastor. Oh, it is. That's hard. But if you understand this within the full testimony of what Scripture says about who we are, it's much less hard. We have the psalm writer saying, Behold... I was conceived in iniquity. The Bible perceives of human beings, man, both men and women, being fallen from the moment of conception. That we come into the world not just as a people who haven't done anything good or bad, but a people who already have hearts preconditioned to evil, not to good, but to evil. And hearts guilty of the fall of Adam. We don't come in as neutral operators before the throne of grace. We come in as enemies of the Lord. And whenever you consider what's being told here, it's not amazing that God would not save Esau. It's amazing rather that God would be willing to extend his love to anybody. It's amazing that he would extend his love to Jacob, who even, even before he was born, showed a character that would be troubling and who himself would then go on to live a life that would show it forth. And so again, I tell you this, it's not amazing that God would not save Esau. Friends, it is amazing that God would be willing to save anybody. That is the bigger thing. That is the larger message that I want to encourage you today. That God's grace, something by His own choice, by His own grace, something uh, that is wonderful without reference to who we are or what we will do or what we have done or haven't done, but rather a thing only with reference to His sovereign choice, His elected desire, His delight to save some. That ought to be amazing to you. 
It ought to be amazing grace to you. It ought to be something that gives you daily, daily encouragement rather than pride-building affirmation. I want to leave you with something. I remember one of my professors, when he would speak about this, and I think he probably still does today, he almost always turns to him 469. How sweet and awesome is the place that Isaac Watts hymn. Uh, and verses 2 and 3, let me read them to you. I encourage this to be your heart when considering the sovereign grace of God. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? God's sovereign election is nothing short of amazing. It is grace profoundly extended to people that we might be saved. Give praise to God that it relies on Him, not upon us. It relies on His heart, His delight, His kindness. Not upon how good we are, how good we will be, or how bad we are and how bad we may well be. Let us pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the Scriptures. We give thanks that we could be together as a people worshiping in the hearing of Your Word. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, that, Lord, you would teach us to come near to Christ with hearts filled with faith. Lord, that we would submit ourselves to him and delight in him. Lord, be in the midst of the remainder of our service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.